So uh, Monday night, I got to, uh, I was up in New York, I got to go to church. As you, you'll know, I, uh, I spent a year at school at General Theological Seminary in uh, Chelsea in Manhattan, which is the nation's oldest Episcopal seminary. One of the things that Anglicans do that's a little weird if you have not been accustomed to it is that they chant the Psalms. I mean, this goes all the way back to the monastic movement where the monks would get together and chant the Psalms. In some orders, you actually chanted the whole Psalter in a single day. Most of them, you chant the whole Psalter within a month or within a week. But, uh, but the idea is that you would sing them. And, and there are a couple reasons you would sing them. One is so that they might be uh, more easy to remember. But another is that if you're chanting the Psalter every week, week after week after week after week, you might enjoy having a little bit of variety. So there are actually different settings for chanting the Psalms. And so when, when we were up there, we were, we were doing that. And, it, and it, it's something, one of the great joys for me when I was uh, in school there was, was being able to worship in, in the chapel. It's, just, it's a beautiful space. And uh, to be able to, to sing uh, Psalms and also the canticles, which are passages of Scripture that you also will read during morning and evening prayer uh, that you'll sing, uh, if you have a sung evening prayer. It's a wonderful experience uh, and, and deeply worshipful for me, but it's a little weird if you're not used to it. And if you're coming back to it after not doing it, for, and Mary's shaking her head. Mary, a you know, professionally trained classical musician, Peabody Masters, when she came up and she, I, I figured she would really dig this, and she's just like, I have to follow the notes and the words. I'm not getting, she, she didn't enjoy it. Yeah, well, you get used to it. But, but you, you notice, especially when you're coming to it uh, fresh, that some psalms are really strange to chant, right? Like, I mean, it's one thing if you're, you know, chanting, you know, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But if you're chanting stuff like, and this was not the psalm on, on Monday night, but if, if you're chanting stuff like, God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. Like, and you've got some of these really magnificent settings to the songs. It just there seems sometimes I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect between these words and the music. And 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 what's then what's really fun is then when you, you you'll get stuff like he sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. You know, you, you have these people, and, and, and a number of them are, you know, dressed in, in, you know, cassocks and sort of like these really traditional uh, 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 vestments. And then you have some people who are, you know, trained as, as singers, or they've got a, lo- a lot of experience singing choirs. And you hear people sing a word like frogs <laughs> that devastated them. He gave their crops to the grasshopper, you know? So... I had to make sure I didn't get thrown out for, for chuckling at this. But, um, but you wonder, I mean, the, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, right? I mean, they're, they're designed to be, I mean, they, they are sort of the worship set, like that's, that's what would be thrown up on the screen back in the day. Uh, and some of these Psalms can be really hard to read, especially when you read Psalms that chronicle the unfaithfulness of God's people. So you get like in in Psalm 106, it starts off, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And then you get to verse 6, we have sinned even as our fathers did. 
We've done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Talking about all the wicked, awful things that God's people have done. Now at the end, you know, he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered their covenant. Out of his great love, he relented. He caused them to be pitied by those who held them captive. So save us, Yahweh our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. So usually in the Psalms, at the end, it comes back around to a note of praise and testifying to God's faithfulness and goodness. But then there also are Psalms, like Psalm 89, which just basically ends in a really depressing note. You know, remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Yahweh, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And you just you have a strong, and that actually comes at like 106, it comes at the end of a group of psalms. So you kind of get a sense that somebody wanted to make sure you just sort of tag that on at the end, that that wasn't the last word. But these, these, these psalms can be difficult to read because they tell about this depressing story. And frankly, these psalms are not just made up. They're based on actual stories, bless you. They're based on stories of God's people screwing up. Why is this stuff in the Bible? Well, Paul tells us here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians that these are here as an example to warn us. And I don't think it's necessarily such a bad thing that we remember these things both by reading about them in these prose stories and by reading about them in the poetry of the Psalms, by praying them, by singing them. He starts off chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They're baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, as you may recall, having read the book of Numbers, uh, the, it does not actually say there that the rock was Christ. Paul is doing something very creative in his interpretation of the story of the people of Israel. If you remember the uh, the, the story of the people of Israel is that they fell into slavery in Egypt. Um, initially, uh, Joseph, the, the son of, of Jacob, uh, the patriarch, uh, managed to corner the grain market and got to a position of great authority in Pharaoh's household. But then the next Pharaoh came up and he didn't know who Joseph was and, and the nation ended up enslaved. For about 400 years they were enslaved and then God sent Charlton Heston to redeem them from slavery and or... or or Christian Bale, if you prefer the more recent version. Um, but, but God rescued his people. This is, you know, an enslaved people. He rescued them from slavery, saved them. Not only did he liberate them from slavery to, you know, world's leading superpower, but, but he, in fact, delivered them out from the pursuit of Pharaoh's chariots. This is the, the height of military technology of the time. Uh, he basically, not only does he liberate them from the world's leading superpower. He, he, he liberates them from the special forces of the world's leading superpower. 
saves them. You do the whole thing with the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's army is drowned and the people are safe. And the idea there is that, okay, good, the people are now safe. They're out of Egypt. And now they're going to get God's law. They're going to get his Torah. He's going to tell them how it is that they can live well in this land that he is going to give them. And by give them, he means I'm leading you to this land. I'm going to fight for you against the people who don't want you to be there. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. Everything you need, I'm going to provide for you. And then he says, so we're going to start off by going right into the land, right from the south. And the people said, I don't know. We just sent a bunch of guys there to check it out. And it seems like the people who were there didn't get the memo that we're supposed to be there now. And it also seems like they're really um, big and scary. So maybe we shouldn't do this. And uh, Caleb and Joshua are the only two of the spies who said, what are you kidding? God, God's on our side. He's fighting for us. He told us to go. We should go. We'll be, we'll, we'll be fine. I'm like, ah, no, I don't think so. We shouldn't go. And so they, so they don't. So the nation doesn't go and attack. The fun part is then later on, they're like, oh, wait, no, we should have done it. Let's do it now. God's like, no, too late. No, no, we're going to do it now. And they do it, and then they get beat uh, all the way back to Hormah, uh, which could also mean uh, they got destroyed utterly. Uh, but as a result of this, the people, God says, look, here's the deal. Because you didn't trust me, you all are going to wander around in this wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation of these people who did not believe that I would come through on my promises dies off. So Caleb and Joshua are the only ones. Not even Moses got to go into the land. Caleb and Joshua are the only ones. And you wonder around like year 39 and 10 months what that must have been like in the camp. You know, you see this old guy kind of walk over. Oh, Sheldon's here. Guess it's not today. I'm just saying it probably would have been like that if you took this 40-year thing. Anyway, so, but the story is, I mean, it's a sad one. It's a sad one of God's people hearing him make a promise. And frankly, you know, God having established his trustworthiness. I mean, he, he took them from being slaves and rescued them out of Egypt, saved them from Pharaoh's army, like, you'd think he'd have the right to say, I can take care of you, and to be believed, but it didn't happen. Well, what Paul's doing here in, in telling this story, first of all, is, is, is he wants to remind us that it exists, and he really does want to tie this story of Israel to the story of the church. This is one of their places in Scripture where we find radical discontinuity between God's people Israel and God's people the church. But this is a place where Paul is trying to demonstrate the radical continuity between God's people Israel and God's people the church. He's saying their story is our story. We're, part, we're all part of this same story of God working out his purposes through his people and his people not always being terribly cooperative. Now Paul says these things, verse 6, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage in pagan revelry. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We shouldn't test 
the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. Here Paul is, just in these, in these few short verses, he's referring to these stories from Scripture that some of his hearers would have known very, very well. Others, especially the Gentiles among them, would have, would have had to learn them. But certainly the Jewish hearers would have known exactly what he was talking about. The, the first, when he says, don't commit idolatry, as some of them did, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is the, the story of the golden calf. You may remember this where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from God. And he's up there so long, he's, he's been there like a month, and people are like, now, you know, is he ever coming back? What's going on? Are we just stranded here, sitting around this mountain? So they get Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, look, why don't you make us gods who will go before us? This guy Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, eh, we don't know. Aaron said, okay, fine, uh, take off all your gold earrings, bring them to me. And Aaron makes an idol in the shape of a calf. And that is, uh, by the way, this is the picture on the cover of your bulletin is from the uh, Cecil B. DeMille version of Ten Commandments, the color version of Ten Commandments. Uh, he actually did a black and white one earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this is, incidentally, if you watch it, uh, one of the great G-rated orgy scenes in all of cinematic history. Because uh, the movie is, in fact, rated G, and what is, in fact, depicted here is an orgy. Uh, the people, uh, it says in Scripture... The people rose early, they sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to get down, or to indulge in revelry. But they got up to get down. Paul says, don't do that. Idolatry, not a good idea. And he says, don't commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 died. This is the story of, of Phineas, of Pinchas, in, in Numbers 25, after Israel finally gets done with his joker, Balaam. Israel is staying in Shittim, and the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. You've got to watch those Moabite women. Um, except, of course, if you're talking about Ruth, who was... Uh, from whom our Lord Jesus Christ descended. Um, but the Moabite women were trouble. They invited God's people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, as a, a local pagan deity. They joined in this pagan worship. And Yahweh's anger burned against them. So Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before Yahweh so that Yahweh's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. This was a, just a, a great day. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. So, okay, picture this scene. Okay? Moses is just commanding that, that people be put to death for their intermarriage and idolatry. And as this is going on, this dude strolls through the camp with another foreign woman in front of everybody while they're weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
So in Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, this is Moses' great nephew, Pinchas, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and he made a shish kebab out of the both of them. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. What they did, don't do that. Paul says in verse 9, we shouldn't test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. This also is from Numbers, a few chapters earlier, where the Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food, this miraculous manna that God has provided for them that they never would have been able to get otherwise. We're sick of it. Sick of eating this goop every day. And Yahweh sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, Okay, we sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Please pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Yahweh said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole so that anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. People put God to the test. They didn't take him seriously. Then they took him seriously. What they did, don't do that. Numbers 11, when God, this is just one example, God says don't grumble. There's about a dozen stories of the people grumbling. Here's one of them. The people complained about all their hardships in the hearing of Yahweh, and when he heard them, his anger was around. Now remember, these are people who are complaining about the hardships that they're experiencing precisely because of their own unfaithfulness. Right? So then fire from Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to to Moses, he prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Another complaining example, the rabble with them began to crave other food. They got sick of this miraculous manna that God had provided. And, And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, Oh, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Of course, we got the stuff in Egypt at no cost because we were slaves and everything had to be provided for us. They conveniently left that out. But now we've lost our appetite. We don't see anything but this manna. So Moses heard the people of every family wailing each at the entrance to his tent. And Yahweh became exceedingly angry. And Moses was troubled. He says, yeah, look, what... <laughs> What did I do to you? Right? You put the burden of all these people on me. I mean, I, you know, it's not like they're all my kids, you know, and, and they, they're demanding all, they, they're demanding meat. Where am I, where am I going to feed these, all these people? And Yahweh says, look, I'll, I'll take care of it. And the bottom line is basically sends a whole bunch of quail in from the, the sea, uh, sends them in by the wind, and the place is blanketed with them, and the people eat until they're, until they're sick. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of Yahweh burned against the people 
and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was called Kibrot Hatava, because there they buried the people. That means graves of craving, which I think kind of sounds more awesome than Kibrot Hatava, but because the graves of craving actually would be like a good band name, right? Like death metal graves, anyway. Because they buried the people there who had craved other food. I think the, the, the bottom line of all of these stories for Paul is to say, look, don't do this stuff. These were, stories are given to us in, as, as an example to warn us against doing these things that were done. And as we'll talk about next week, a lot of this comes from not taking God seriously. But he's saying here, don't take sin lightly. As we've seen it to this point in 1 Corinthians, it seems like one of the big problems going on in the church at Corinth is that people are dancing kind of close to the edge when it comes to all kinds of practices, whether it has to do with ways that they're worshiping, ways that they're living in terms of the, simply the way they eat and drink, the ways that they treat other people certainly the ways that they handle their sexuality. You have people who are not at all taking seriously the fact that there is such a thing as sin. There's such a thing as violating God's will. There's such a, way, uh, such a thing as living in a way that is not the best that God has for us and that doing that has consequences. He says these things, verse 11, happen to them as examples, they were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It seems that there were people in Corinth who were so confident in the, in the rightness of their beliefs, so confident in the rightness of their behavior, so sure that they were doing things the right way, so sure that other people were missing out, sure that other people didn't get the point, that other people didn't understand, so sure that they were right, so sure that the way they were living was holy. They were so sure that they weren't at all worried that they might not be right. And so they were messing around way more than was safe with things like idolatry, with sexual immorality. They felt free to test the Lord. They felt free to grumble, certainly as we've seen, to grumble against God's servant Paul, who is the apostle who planted this church. I don't think Paul tells these stories to suggest that God's grace is somehow exhausted by these sins. I don't think God at all is trying to say, watch out, because if you, if you keep messing up like this, then God's going to get you. What he's saying is, these things have consequences. These things have consequences. 
So these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us. Rather than being cocky, rather than being confident of your own rightness, you need to be humble. You need to be careful. You need to take this stuff seriously. It's like you're trying to rewire your house without shutting the electricity off. This could end very badly. You know, rather than dancing on the ledge, you need to resist temptation. You don't need to toy with them. You don't need to play with them. You need to resist them. And he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God's faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That paradigm story of temptation is that one from the garden. You'll remember this one. Eve is addressed by the serpent, that serpent who is more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. He said, does God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? No, he did not. No, he said, he said you can eat, you should eat, please eat from all the trees in the garden except just this one. So already, this voice of temptation comes implying that God is less generous, less gracious than He is. We see this very clearly in the example of sexual immorality. People will, will say, oh, well, God just doesn't want me to, to have any, any fun at all. He doesn't want me to express myself. No, that's not it at all. He just wants you to do that with one person that you're married to. He wants you to do that. He wants you to pick one person. So the woman said to the serpent, no, actually we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you can't eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you also can't touch it. Now, did he say you can't touch it? No, he did not say you can't touch it. This is, again, a, a fairly common practice where people will take a, a command that God has given and then they kind of build like a little, little fence around that. And then they maybe build like a little hedge around the fence, maybe another, another fence around the hedge, around the fence. And it's kind of the idea is we don't want to get anywhere close to that. And, and in a lot of ways, the instinct's good. The instinct's like, well, yeah, we, 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 we want to make sure we don't violate the commandment, so we're not going to get anywhere close to it. But the problem is it misrepresents what God said And because that fence can seem so unreasonably restrictive, then eventually people will say, yeah, that doesn't seem right at all. That's what happened to Eve. Because God said, we can't eat from fruit from that tree, we can't touch it, if, or we'll die. And those things God did say, that they couldn't eat the fruit and that they would die. The serpent says, you're not going to die. Really? I mean, come on. In our modern day, don't we know better than that, the serpent says? 
You're not going to die. God knows, in fact, that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. You'll just be just like God. You're going to know good and evil. You get to be just like God. You don't have to be you anymore. You get to be just like God. Won't that be terrific? And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. I'm not sure all temptation boils down to one of these, but at least most of them do. We're tempted to see this sin as something that is useful, right? She saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food. That's good for food. That's useful. I'm sure the idolatry could seem really useful if you need your crops to grow. And it seems like these folks do this weird stuff for this God Baal and they believe that makes their crops grow. So if we want to make the crops grow, maybe we should kind of do that too. That just makes sense, right? There's always, not always, there usually is something about what we're tempted to that that we can at least make a claim is going to be useful, is going to do some good, is going to be worthwhile. And she saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye, because there usually is something about temptation that's bright and shiny, isn't there? Something that draws our eye, that draws our mind, that makes us want to dwell on it, makes us want to go after it. The proverb talks about the drunkard who sees the wine flowing into the glass. There's nothing wrong with appreciating the beauty of a glass of wine well poured. That's one of the things that you know fancy snooty wine snobs do is they hold the glass up to the light. They swirl it around and they talk about the color and the legs and whatever else they talk about. And that's, that's fine. But if, if you're not somebody who can control your drinking, then all you're doing is just sort of salivating over something that is going to be a drug that takes over your brain. And she also saw that this fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. Oftentimes when we're tempted to sin, we can come up with some noble reason why we need to do that thing. Well, this is only the right thing to do. If people don't think this is the right thing to do, then I'm just taking a stand for an unpopular cause. No, you're just doing something that's wrong. always come up with some good reason to justify what we do. And the story of Eve is the story of Israel, is the story of us. It certainly is the story of the church in Corinth. There's stuff going on that frankly in itself is har- in and of itself is harmless, but the way it's being handled is anything but harmless. The way it's being handled is corroding the souls of the people who are involved. And Paul says, just as the results of those indulgences were bad for Israel, 
can be bad for you too. These temptations you face are not common. There's nothing especially new or exciting. There's nothing more difficult about the temptations you face than temptations anybody else faced. Paul says it's all, it's all the same stuff. And the fact is God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he'll always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In other words, there's no situation you can be put in that you have to sin to get out of. God will never put us in a situation that we have to escape from by violating his will. Now, we may not like the way out that he provides. We may not find it comfortable. We might find that it costs us more than we would like. We may find it to be painful. We may find that we have to speak difficult truths to people. We may find that we have to be willing to embarrass ourselves. I will commend to you in the season of Lent coming up in a week and a half, one practice of the Anglican tradition, which is the Episcopal Church with which New Hope shares this building where I get to serve as the vicar. There's a, a practice of called the Sacrament of Reconciliation, also known as Confession. You know, some of us came from traditions where that sort of thing was weird and Catholic. And then some of us are Catholic and think that's weird. But then there are people who never even encountered it. Whether you know about it, whether you're skeptical of it, whether you've experienced it as something that has been helpful or whether you never even heard of it. We will, I will be hearing confession by appointment during Lent. It's a time when you can specifically confess your sins and hear the assurance that you are absolved of them. We get to do that all the time with each other. It's not like you need a priest to do this. And it's not like you need to follow the words in the prayer book for forgiveness to be real, but some people find that this practice, this spiritual discipline is a useful one. I would commend it to you. I would invite you to consider whether that might be something that could be part of your Lenten observance. And if you want more information, I'd be happy to talk about it. If you aren't even sure you want to talk to me about wanting to talk about it, you can Grab one of those maroon prayer books out of the pews and seriously, like, take it home. No, we're not going to miss one. I do miss the one that was here. I don't know where it went. If you see one that's a little bigger than the others, uh, let me know. But you look up Sacrament of Reconciliation of a Penitent. Because they all, they all have to have these really nice, fancy names. But the, the language is lovely. But there's always a way out. Whatever temptation we're facing, there's always a way out. God's always going to provide a way out. It's God who will provide it. It's not, Paul does not say, and whenever you're tempted, you need to figure out some way to get out of it. He says, no, when you're tempted, God's going to provide a way out. You need to be alert to what that is. You need to pay attention to what it is. You need to ask God to give you the strength and the grace to follow it. But you need to follow God's way out. Not try to devise your own. God's faithful. Even when we're unfaithful, God is faithful. He always is. He always provides us a way out. Let's pray.
Lord God, it is our confession that we are weak. We are so very weak. We are grateful that you are strong. We're grateful that your strength is not simply strength, but it is a loving and caring strength. It's the strength of a father rescuing his children. We pray that we would be people and that we would be a community who look to you, turn to you for salvation, turn to you for rescue, turn to you for a way out when we get ourselves in a pickle. We pray that we would be mindful of the very real consequences that sin can have. Even as we trust in your grace and your shed blood on our behalf, we also know that so many of the terrible things we experience come as a direct result of the terrible things we do. I pray that we would be people who are faithful. I pray that as we experience your faithfulness, that we would grow into what it means for us to be faithful to you. I pray that this would be to your glory, to the edification of your church. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.